0: We are in week five of our study on the 23rd Psalm. The Psalms were the ancient hymnal of the Jewish people. We get that word from, uh, again, an ancient word, meaning songs of praise. For over 2,000 years, Psalm 23 has brought inspiration and comfort to its hearers. So we're diving in deeper so we can better understand this familiar passage. And if you're not so familiar with it, good. That's the point of us studying it together for all of us to find out more. That's what this is for. So, if you missed any of our other weeks, I'd encourage you to check those out in our message archive on our website. In June of 2009, Sarah and I had friends getting married in Florida, and it was also our first anniversary. So, we decided to make a trip out of it and spend a day at Disney World. Neither of us had ever been before. The hype was real, friends, it was incredible. And, and so I, I hope you can see here a couple, uh, couple of things. I decided to go full dad mode and, and get the uh, whole tourist hat of the Mickey, what's it called, the Sorcerer's Apprentice hat, right? That was 50 bucks. Uh, but when we first got to the park, they said to us, well, what are you celebrating? And we're like, oh, it's our anniversary. And they gave us these sweet buttons. You can see it uh, there on, on the top left. They gave us these buttons that said, Happy anniversary. I think we were there 14 hours at the park, and all day long, staff at the park would see us and say, happy anniversary. Oh, we felt like VIPs, man. It was incredible. They really did know how to make their guests feel special. And, and Disney uh, incorporates and offers training uh, for, for all types of leaders across disciplines and different fields at their Disney Institute. Their hospitality is truly legendary. What kind of hospitality habits do you have? When someone comes over to your house, what do you do? Do you offer to take their coat, offer them something to drink, give them the best seat? In biblical culture, hospitality was an incredibly important value. In our scripture today, we're going to see the tone of our psalm shift From from agricultural language of God being a shepherd to language of hospitality, God being a host. So verse 5 kind of pivots a little bit and changes the tenor of the psalm. And what I hope we'll discover today is that God wants to welcome you as a gracious host. Now before we jump into verse 5, let's read Psalm 23 verses 1 through 4. Kind of see where we've been so far. of Psalm 23, it's interesting because the audience changes, <clears throat> excuse me, the audience changes. In, in these first verses, you, you hear uh, the first couple describing God. God is the audience, right? It's, it's describing the qualities of God, the shepherd, to us, the hearers. But then it shifts and, 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 and it describes or addresses God directly, now, another interesting aspect of Psalm 23 is the chiastic structure. Now, this simply means that in Psalm 23, there are multiple themes that mirror each other, right? And you can see these on, on, on the left side there with these, these kind of indicator letters. These are sort of different dual themes that the Psalm frames up. So, A, God is the first and last subject. And then, B, God is who provides and guides and in C, leads us to comfort. Pasture and table, water and cup, letter C. These are both equivalent to food and drink, which represent God's provision. And because of this, we can fear no evil, which serves as the pivot point in the center of the psalm. The chiastic structure of Psalm 23, kind of these these. Dual themes all throughout. They kind of match up, pair up, and go together. The theme of shepherding runs through the first half of Psalm 23. And then again, we pivot, we make a shift from God as shepherd to God as host, making preparations and accommodations. So here's Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's, a, that's an interesting phrase. How are we supposed to interpret that? What does it mean? Again, this marks a significant shift in the imagery and the metaphor prior to, to verse 5. The, the previous four verses uh, employ the imagery of God as a shepherd. And so some biblical scholars think it's interesting that right in the middle you would have such a, such a big difference. And so to kind of resolve this tension or to maybe try and continue the theme of shepherding, there was one biblical scholar named Julian Morgenstern. And he argued that the word table has been mistranslated. In, in Hebrew, there's, there's a lot of little tiny differences, and a little dot or a little, a little line here or there can, can indicate a totally different word. So his theory was that the word table has been mistranslated and it should actually read a very similar word uh, appearance-wise in Hebrew, javelin or spear. So his proposal was that Psalm 23.5 should read this. Thou arrayest a spear in front of me in the presence of my enemies. As in the enemies, the, sh- uh, the wolves, the mountain lions, the bears that try and prey upon the sheep. Those would be the enemies according to the shepherding concept in the psalm, and the shepherd has, has the spears all laid out and is waiting to defend the sheep. That was what he argued for, and this would maintain the continuity of the shepherding theme through all six verses, because you give oil to sheep uh, and, and apply medicine that way, and, and you water sheep in troughs. And so uh, anointing a sheep with oil and, and, and watering sheep, that makes sense. Again, in this metaphor of, of God caring for us as a shepherd cares for the flock. But the consensus over 2,000 years, that, that doesn't necessarily support this translation. I just thought it was too cool not to share. Thou arrayest a spear before me. I didn't even know arrayest was a word. So I just wanted to have that up on the screen for everybody. Now what's being described at the beginning of verse five you prepare a table before me. It's setting the table. These are describing the duties of a host. We'll see this more in detail in a moment as we kind of look a little closer at, at Near East ancient hospitality rituals, the customs of the time. But who are these enemies? If this table is being set for, for uh, the author, who are the enemies that surround? Gene Rice said this in a commentary I thought it was an excellent list of questions. Who are these enemies? Are they persons who have accused the psalmist of some offense? Or are the enemies hostile, foreign troops stationed in Palestine? Are the enemies godless members of the psalmist's own society who scoff at and oppose the psalmist? Is there a connection between the enemies and the psalmist's experience of going through the valley of the shadow of death? We don't know. We don't know the the description of the role of the enemies is is not specific. It does serve as a reminder as we've seen throughout this series that following the shepherd or being welcomed by the gracious host does not mean that you are immune from making enemies. Whoever these enemies are, we know they are not a threat. The foes are unable to harass the author and must look on while he feasts. So so you prepare a table before me in the presence of the enemies. What does that mean? It means so confident is the author in the provision and the security of his hosts that his enemies are of such little concern that his dinner won't even be interrupted. Now that's some peace. What an image. You got enemies all around, but dinner's ready, so you're gonna sit on down and eat. Even though the author is surrounded by enemies, the author still experiences the serene peace and confidence in their able host. This reminds me of the resolve of Jesus, who himself prepared and served a meal in the presence of his enemies. We read this in Matthew 26. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12, his disciples. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And so the imagery in Psalm 23, 5 reinforces what we talked about last week, that faith isn't about being exempt from trouble, but rather what you would expect on the other side. The table is set and a banquet offered, even as enemies surround the duties of a host in the ancient Near East are also reinforced when we read, You anoint my head with oil. Oil was a substance of special significance in biblical times. It was a sign of favor and, and recognition, of honor. David himself, the author of the psalm, was anointed as a young man, as a symbol for his fitness to be king, of, uh, a recognition of his being chosen for the role. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 16. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. In ancient customs, oil was also something a host would customarily provide to their guests. Uh, you can think of it as like a courtesy, right? It helped add a little shine to the complexion, freshen things up a bit. It also uh, gave both the guests and the room like a pleasing fragrance, it smelled good. And we see this custom of providing guests oil or the lack of it on display from the life of Jesus as well. There was one episode where, where Jesus was having dinner with a group of folks and, and one particular woman uh, was, was treating him with special honor. She broke a jar of, of very expensive uh, perfume open and, and poured it all over Jesus. And she begins to be criticized for this And then this is how Jesus responds. This is from Luke 7. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Jesus is pointing out that the host didn't do the expected thing that hosts do. The host dishonored Jesus by not offering him oil. The host continues in Psalm 23 to provide for the guests more and more. Verse 5 is completed with, My cup overflows. The cup the host provides to the honored guests is filled to capacity with wine. Other translations of the Bible, like today's English version, render this, you fill my cup to the brim. This again reflects well on the host. Jesus once honored the host of a wedding feast when he turned water into wine. Gigantic jugs of water were there uh, to, to help facilitate the celebration. And in this miracle, Jesus honored the host. It was remarked, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. It's a good strategy. But you have saved the best till now. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, commented on this verse. He said that the overflowing cup represents a plentiful portion signified by the cup given to the guests by the master of the feast. The imagery of the overflowing cup is meant to represent abundance, provision, and joy. God wants to welcome you as a gracious host. Verse 5 portrays the author as God's guest, a feast spread out before them, oil generously offered, and an overflowing cup. So if you find yourself weary today, you have an invitation to pause From your long journey in the valley and enjoy the provision, security, and abundance of God. This image of the overflowing cup, it's one that I've really honed in on these past few weeks as we've looked at Psalm 23. Verse 5 has been in the back of my mind a lot lately. How full has your cup been? Can we sit here and tell one another that our cup has been overflowing? Or they're just barely a couple drops at the bottom. I don't know about you, but since March, I have found myself battling at times with, with overwhelming sadness. That's been largely my reaction to this entire pandemic. I'm just so dang sad. I have a lot of friends who are pastors. And they're trying to to do two things in this season. Both say goodbye. Uh, I have lots of friends that are pastors that are moving, that are being reappointed to another church. And so they're trying to both say goodbye to their current congregation, which they've lived with and loved for years. And they're also trying to say hello to to a new congregation through a screen. I, I just... My experience coming here last July and meeting all of you was was so wonderful, and I hate that all these pastors and all these churches uh, just don't get to do that in the same way that they should. Trying to do this in the middle of of the pandemic, I feel so sad for them not being able to say goodbye or say hello like they would like. This week, I attended a wake for a dear member of our congregation who passed away. We couldn't do the funeral here at church because of the current restrictions in Clay County. I hate that. I hate that that's necessary. There's never a good time to go, but this is certainly the worst time to go. A few weeks ago, I attended a drive-through wake in Lee's Summit for the father of a dear friend who passed away suddenly. Suddenly. I have wept for families who have lost someone during this time. This week, our country reached a grim milestone. 100,000 deaths from this, from this disease, from this virus. I, I, I can't even wrap my mind around that. It just makes me so sad. <clears throat> this month, our class of 2020 graduated in a way they never would have expected And so my heart has been broken for all all students, but especially those seniors who had their last spring semester altered. I just hate it for y'all. I am deeply grieved when we read headlines about another young black man whose life was taken by the sin of racism. Now, in between the time I wrote this sermon and the time I'm giving it to you, we've got more headlines about another black man whose life was claimed by the sin of racism. Now, you may be thinking, hold on a second, Pastor. There could still be lots of facts to come out. We are entitled to a trial in this country. You are right, which is exactly why the injustice is so maddening. Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd weren't presumed innocent until proven guilty. Their execution has already been decided. It makes me incredibly sad, and I struggle to know what to do. I don't always know the the thing we should preach about to tell us how to fix this. I don't know. all, All I know is I'm just very sad. I am deeply grieved at how partisan politics has shaped our country and our community's response to this pandemic. If we can't push past only seeing red or blue, what kind of country are we creating for our children? The level of public discourse in this country indicates to me that a lot of us consider ourselves more American than we do Christian. We have got it backwards, and it breaks my heart. So I don't know about you, but my cup has been full of sadness lately. That's about the most depressing minute and 15 seconds I've I've ever given anyone in a sermon, by the way. But I'm just trying to be real. I've been in a process of trying to pray about this wonderful list I've given to you because what good does all that sadness do me or anyone else? When I bring my list of sad prayers to God, here's a confession I get annoyed. There's a big part of me when I pray that's just annoyed. Like, why do I need to spend time convincing God to do something about this? Well, that shouldn't be up to me. God shouldn't need me for advice. God shouldn't need me to like, get stuff going? Why is that my job? God shouldn't need me to do that. But the overflowing cup in Psalm 23, it's led me to an epiphany. I've been thinking about prayer all wrong. In middle school, I read a book called The Giver about the society where, where no one has any memories or emotions except for one designated person who, who kind of takes on all the pain and all the emotions for their entire village. Shout out to all the 90s kids who read that. Well, here's the deal. No one got together to elect me the giver. My capacity to take on the hurt of the world is minuscule, it's it's laughable. And besides, that's not in my job description as a human. So here's what I've realized. I no longer consider prayer convincing God to do something about my sad list. I'm working on that. I don't wanna conceive of prayer as convincing God to do something about my sad list. No, instead, I will use prayer to take my cup that is filled with sadness and despair of frustration and and unanswered questions and I will take that cup which represents the state of my soul and I will pour it out before God. I will empty it so that instead it can be filled with the goodness and mercy of God. God wants to welcome you as a gracious host. God longs to provide peace and security even when it feels like you're surrounded by enemies. Through Christ, God has done all that is necessary for each of us to be forgiven, restored, and to possess a cup overflowing with goodness and mercy. Jesus called this life to the full. When our cup is filled to the brim with the goodness and mercy of God, we are freed to give it away to others so that the feast of God can grow wider and wider so that more and more people are welcomed to the table and experience the abundance and the provision and security of God, our gracious host. Thanks be to God, our shepherd, our host, our protector, our defender. And everybody said, Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your words that bring comfort amidst uncertainty, amidst frustration. May we be people whose cup overflows with your goodness and mercy. And and whatever it is that that fills our soul, that, that... that that defines our cup currently may we pour that out in order to receive all that you long to provide us with god use us as instruments of your provision for others may we not follow you as the good shepherd or or may we not just be welcomed by you as our gracious host only for our sake but that we would exhibit your goodness and mercy so that others would be included as well, so that we could be a conduit for others to feel your presence, experience your joy, and come to your table. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.